You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School. Are you looking for another business podcast that addresses some of the world's most complex challenges, including climate change, with the help of experts engaged in cutting-edge research? Then you should check out If Then, the new podcast from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. If Then is made for curious people looking for answers to challenging questions. Each episode focuses on an in-depth conversation with a Stanford GSB professor about the innovations and insights they're most excited about and why they matter. If you're looking for a place to start, I recommend their recent episode with Bill Barnett, Stanford GSB's professor of organizational behavior about climate change and sustainable business ideas. The premise of the episode? If we want to seriously address the climate crisis, then we need to engage foolish business ideas. It's a fascinating conversation. So don't wait. Follow If Then, that's if slash then, wherever you get your podcasts. The impact of climate and whether that's a two-week very granular forecast or whether that's a 50 or 100 year estimate on what the future climate looks like for certain locations. That's really important for our customers as they look to deal with things like heat stress and drought stress and precipitation stress in the future, sea level rise, tropical cyclones and wind speeds. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School. And I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. In today's episode, I'm talking with Jim Hayden, chief data scientist at EverStream Analytics, which is a data science company that helps its clients manage supply chain risks, including those from climate change. I'll ask Jim how EverStream helps companies adapt and respond to climate change risks and why AI is an important tool for optimizing supply chains. And as usual, I'll ask him to share some advice for those interested in working at the intersection of business and climate change. Here's my interview with Jim Hayden from EverStream Analytics. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here on Climate Rising. Nice to be here, Mike. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, let's start with an introduction. What's your role at EverStream? I'm the chief data scientist here at EverStream Analytics. And in that role, I manage a few different teams of data scientists working in different problem areas. I manage our applied meteorology team. I manage our intelligent solutions team, which are human beings doing research into global incidents. And I also manage our product team. So Jim, tell me a little bit about how large your company is and where it's based. Sure. We're a completely remote company. We've been that way since pre-COVID. I have people in Australia and Singapore and India and Germany and Alaska and the US. We've got a couple hubs where there's people based on where the prior acquisitions came from. So in Germany, we have a good team there. And in the U.S. and the Florida area, we've got a pretty good-sized team there. Other than that, we're all over the globe. That sounds like a pretty challenging situation to manage a team or many teams around the world. What are the biggest challenges for you and what have you found to be successful? Sure, it is a challenge. And the social connection is, is a big one, right? And so we do things like have happy hours once a month, but they're remote happy hours. We do things like try to get people together in small teams, at least the people they work with. You know, f- fairly regularly, and, and that helps as well. And what we found is those employees that have less experience in the office that, you know, maybe are, are, are new entrants into their career, they seem to have a little harder time. There's none of the, well, how does work work that they're learning, right? And where you, where you, if you had spent time in the office, you learn some things about work that aren't written down anywhere. Yeah, the hallway conversations that you don't plan a meeting for, but you just see people around. And Exactly. Yeah. And how did you get there? How did you land at EverStream? 
So fortunately, early in my career, I figured out how important data was. And so I started out as a database administrator, then a database architect, and then I had some management skills, and I got put in charge of a team that had PhDs in something called machine learning that I hadn't heard about before. And this was in the mid-90s. And our task was to build the surveillance system for the NASDAQ stock market. So I jumped right in and got an introduction to how machine learning works, how it works on big data. And I've been doing that ever since. I've done it throughout the financial services industry on different problems like anti-money laundering. I've done it in the telecommunications sector to optimize networks. And now for the past nine years, I've been applying various machine learning uh, techniques to help supply chains get optimized. And so what led you to think that supply chains was the next stop for you in your career? Well, I've always been chasing bigger data. And when I understood that people were using IoT, Internet of Things devices, on cargo containers to track them around the globe, I figured that's a lot of data. And I bet we could do some interesting analytics on top of that. So what's the elevator pitch for what EverStream Analytics does? Well, we use machine learning to help our customers understand their complex multi-tier supply chains and help them mitigate risk and disruption. We also help them improve their ESG performance. But the essence of what we do is we tell our customers something they don't know that they should know about. And that can be along many different dimensions, using forecasts, using predictive modeling, using human intelligence, just looking at newspapers that are local in foreign languages to really let them know what's going on and could impact them with as much notice as possible. And so what types of decisions are you trying to influence for these companies? First, it's to let them know that there's risk ahead of them. Then it's to help them understand their options to mitigate the risk. And in certain areas, we're actually helping decide, using AI to decide what they should do about the risk. What data do you use to help build these models that are these predictive models that help expose these risks and help figure out what the options are and, and then perhaps even recommend one of the options for them to choose? Where, do you, where are you getting this data? No, well, no matter how you look at it, we're a big data company. We get data from all over. On our forecast data alone, we get over a billion data points a day. We capture that from the National Weather Service, the European Weather Service, from different platforms. And our meteorologists take those models, they take them apart and put them back together again to get a little more specific on supply chain risk. And that's just one of our sources. We look at a million news and media posts in an hour to understand who, what, and where could be impacting the world supply chains. We capture shipment data from our customers. We have tens of millions of shipments of, on who's trading to around the globe, what modes of transport they're using. And that type of information allows us to get to understanding things like carbon emissions associated with shipments or outbound good delivery. So you're gathering information on weather forecasts, news and media reports about current and future events, and you're sort of putting on top of that the transit that your companies are engaged with with their shipments and where things are coming from, where they're going to, which I imagine also overlays with sort of what are the products and services that they are requiring and that they are providing, and putting all that together into various models. And these models, let's talk a little bit about the modeling. So you have all this data. If you think about your, your old equation of sort of all these are all the X's, and then you're trying to predict a few Y's. Uh, which is the dependent variable in an equation. What are you trying to predict in these instances? Like I mentioned, I have a few different data science teams. 
So one of them is focused on predicting arrival times of shipments based on prevailing conditions. They take the proposed route that the cargo is going to take, and that can be fairly complicated. It can be truck to rail to ocean to rail to truck to finally get there. And we overlay a weather forecast across the entire route, and that allows us to understand potential hazards, as well as allows them to help optimize the equipment that they're using. So not only do we look at timeliness, we can look at the quality of the delivery. Certain goods need to be temperature controlled. We can look at the carbon emissions associated with it and help our customers optimize on that. And of course, we can look at cost. Our customers want to give us that data. So that is predicting arrival time, quality, carbon emissions, cost. Okay, so that's that's all overlaying the weather forecasts, knowing the shipment modes and the locations. That's right, right. Another important thing we do for our customers is we give them visibility into their sub-tier suppliers. This is a big problem in supply chain. Sub-tier means beyond the suppliers from whom they directly procure. That's right, that's right. Tier two, tier three, tier four, in other words. Sure, and, and these are blind spots. And so another big data source we have is we have over 100 billion import-export records that we've gathered from third parties and open sources and that tells you who's shipping what to whom. And we take that information and it's very dirty data. And we use machine learning to help clean that data up. As you can imagine, these come from custom forms where people are typing in the names of companies, they're in foreign languages, they're abbreviated, and we apply what's called entity resolution to that. And that's a big topic in, in AI today, figuring out who's who and where exactly are they trading these goods. Once we have that, we build out what we call our knowledge graph we can then take our customers' tier one suppliers that they know and start understanding who's trading with them and then who's trading with them and who's trading with them to get to the true flow of goods and the value chain all the way down to the raw material. Now, these records of trades, are these US-only records? Are they import-export only records? Do they also cover domestic? What's the limitations or, or contours of that? We take all sorts of data to fill this in. Primarily, it's import-export records. And that's across about 160 countries. Wow. And that tells us who's trading with who, certainly all the major countries. But then that still leaves you, like you said, intra-USA intra shipments and trades and intra-EU shipments and trades that don't cross the border. And so we use shipment records to figure that out from our customers. We're also using a few other techniques to understand patterns in trading relationships. Maybe it's uh, truck movements along certain corridors that go back and forth, and that can show us a trading relationship there. There's a, we're constantly in the hunt for new data uh, to be able to determine these relationships and, and fill in all of those gaps. So what are the other types of decisions? You mentioned you know, arrival time and quality and carbon emissions and cost. What are other types of decisions you're trying to help customers uh, get a handle on? Well, certainly the impact of climate and whether that's a two-week very granular forecast or whether that's a 50 or 100-year estimate on what the future climate looks like for certain locations. And that's, that's really important for our customers as they look to deal with things like heat stress and drought stress and precipitation stress in the future, sea level rise, tropical cyclones and wind speeds. And our projections are based on different impact scenarios depending, frankly, on how human beings behave over the next you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years to, to help with climate change. And we have severe to optimistic, let's call it. And with that type of information, you can make important decisions about where to put your assets, where to do your trading, where to have your suppliers. And 
people often underestimate uh, heat stress and how important that is. You can't work in warehouses and when it's 130 degrees out. And these are important decisions, more planning oriented than they are actual execution and operational. So you're helping companies think about siting decisions, like where should they put their operations, warehouses, and so on. And maybe it sounds like also sourcing questions. Right. Where they should procure from. And that is not only tier ones. If they find out that you know several of their tier twos or tier threes are in high risk locations, they should start looking at moving or alternate sourcing decisions related to that too. Now, you mentioned there's ranging from severe to optimistic scenarios, right? So I think sometimes people refer to this as scenario planning or scenario analysis, where you have different scenarios where in some cases you imagine, okay, lots of mitigation is going to occur, the best case scenario, and then you have sort of a worst case scenario, business as usual, we're going to go back to coal and so on. And then you have a variety of intermediate scenarios and the IPCC reports put out by the UN articulate a variety of these scenarios. I imagine you can't give them too many scenarios. It'll make your head explode. So imagining you choose a subset of these many scenarios that are possible. How then do you help your clients think through the trade-offs between these scenarios? Because I imagine under some scenarios, it will say site here and source there. And under a different scenario, very different recommendations. How do they think about uh, which scenarios to follow and how to balance this? Yeah, some of that depends on, on how sophisticated the customer is. Some of them are actually looking 100 years out, whereas a lot of them, you know, their, their view of the world is five, no more than seven years out. And so we show them, we try to keep it simple. We try to keep things red, yellow, green on risk and then take it from there. So if you just show somebody red under any of the three scenarios, but from, from moderate to severe and it's red, that's the first thing you should worry about. Right. And, and, and that's in this world of supply chain risk, that's kind of what we're focused on too. It's helping them prioritize what they should worry about. And, and that's, that's the purpose of something as simple as red, yellow, and green. So say a little more about some companies are thinking five to seven years and some are thinking a hundred years out. What are you noticing about the different types of companies or management teams or industries that differentiate their time horizon and thinking through these types of issues? Yeah, certain industries we see just move a lot quicker. The ones you would expect, like the you know biopharma industries, they're quick in everything they do. So they're they're thinking a little more near term, a little more 10 years out max, whereas some of the established and blue chip companies, like in the chemical industry, they're thinking longer range from what I see. And is this partly because of the magnitude of the investments that they have to make? If you're making a billion dollar investment in a chemical plant versus a $10 million warehouse or something like that, does that also play a role? Yeah, absolutely. And where you should have hazardous material or not, that, that comes into play. Where you can transport hazardous materials and, and where you can't do that comes into play for that industry. Now, I know you've done some work for AB InBev in Texas. I wonder if you can talk through what was the types of risks that you helped them identify and what decisions did that lead for them? So we helped them manage ongoing risk to their goods being transported. I mentioned this a bit earlier, where we'll understand the route of their shipment, we'll overlay the weather forecast, and then we do prescriptive analytics here. Not only are we predicting what the ambient temperature will be, we're prescribing the optimal equipment to use. And in this case, we're telling them whether they need temperature controlled equipment or not. And what companies used to do is say, okay, for the hot months from June through August, I'm always going to use temperature controlled equipment. Well, you don't need to do that. 
And every time you don't do that, not only do you save 50 cents a mile, but you save significant carbon emissions as well. And so that's that's a fairly straightforward one that's integrated into their operations and uh, works pretty seamlessly. Now, a more impactful one that we helped them with was with the polar vortex in February of 2021. This deep freeze in Texas and our applied meteorology team identified some stratospheric warming event in January of 2021. They weren't exactly sure what was going to happen, but they know it destabilized the polar vortex. And then three weeks in advance, they got a little more fidelity on the model and they understood it was going to get cold in Texas. Still not, still giving our customers a warning, but it wasn't red yet. And then two weeks in advance, we understood this was going to be freezing, so it's red. We still didn't understand the, how long the duration was going to be. And then a week in advance, we told them that there's going to be a significant freeze event here, could go all the way down to Mexico, and that allowed them to take action. The action they took was to halt preloading and positioning of trailers to the brewery grounds one week in advance. No beer in the lot in Texas at all after shipments and they accelerated some shipments outbound to wholesalers. Any trailers that weren't able to be picked up, they backed them up next to the brewery, opened the loading dock doors so they could get some of the hot air out of the brewery that it was giving off. And that allowed to save them over over a million dollars, let's put it that way. This is because you're worried about frozen inventory, essentially destroying the beer. Right. The deep freeze, a deep freeze to something like beer can be pretty significant. And it was the first time they had done anything like that in, in our 10 years working with AB and Breb to just use data, believe a forecast, and take action ahead of time. And that saved them a lot. And the impact of that polar vortex is still being felt a little bit today. What, what people, people understood that you know oil and gas production was salted, what not everyone understood is most of the plastic in the world uses some type of petroleum. And most things in the world in a manufacturing process have some plastic in it. And so that impact uh, was pretty significant. And we had a couple of customers that were able to notify in advance of this, actually a bottling company, and they were able to source elsewhere. This is because you're, you're saying this plastics issue is still being felt because they didn't take evasive actions early enough. Exactly. And they're still feeling the impact of this, of, of not having that when you lose inventory coming out of an area for you know, four to eight weeks, the ripple effect on that can last months. Okay, let me tell you a secret. You don't need to be in a Harvard classroom to hear the best and brightest minds in business. I'm Chris Lenane, host of Harvard Business School Online's new podcast, The Parlor Room. On each episode, I sit down with esteemed Harvard Business School professors to demystify vital business concepts in a way that's entertaining and insightful. We break down academic theory without sacrificing depth. Want to learn how to become a master negotiator? We have the perfect episode for you. Or perhaps the best way to build your personal brand. Yep, we've got that covered too. On each episode of The Parlor Room, you'll gain useful takeaways to navigate the business world from wherever you are. Hear business concepts come to life. Listen to The Parlor Room on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, how sure was your team in 
the advice that they gave AB InBev? Because if the polar vortex had not transpired in the way that you had predicted, presumably all the actions that they took would have been costly and they'd be looking at you saying like, what? What happened? You, you said all this was going to happen. It didn't happen. If you make those misfires a few times, then I think the credibility may unravel. But on the other hand, you don't want to wait till you're 100% sure because you're never going to be 100% sure. It'll probably be too late for them to take evasive action before you're 100% sure. So how do you balance this sort of type one error, type two error is one way to characterize it? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. How do you balance the false positives versus the false negatives? And, and what's the right percentage there? Some customers might be okay with a few false positives, but you know, I don't want to miss anything. So, so some of that depends on the customer, but what we really try to do is be as transparent as possible. So in our world, risk equals probability times severity. And so we know we knew it was severe, but the probability of it hitting exactly there, you know, wasn't a hundred percent, but as it got closer to a hundred percent, they saw the uh, potential risk score going up and up and up. And in our world, that's, that's an indicator that it's going to happen. You're transparent with your clients so that they can apply their own comfort of, of risk tolerance. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and that's key in everything we show our customers. We try to give them as much context as possible, the source of information, what we believe the impact will be. So they can, again, make their own decision. And they, some of them have their own playbooks, depending on the severity and probability of that. Okay, great. So that's the AB InBev story of predicting this weather event and helping them prepare for it by, for example, draining their inventory out of their lots, uh, either by sending them off or by backing their trucks up to the brewery to sort of help heat them. What are some other examples that you have thought through? I know with the medical device industry, you've helped them become more resilient to wildfires by helping them identify risk not only to their own establishments, but to their suppliers and their supplier suppliers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that that's using a combination of data sources. We derive these sub-tier relationships to be able to show our customers their raw material all the way to manufacturing value chain. And once we can do that, we can look for risk in that sub-tier. And so in this case, more than one of our medical device customers has used us to do their sub-tier mapping. And the volume of suppliers you then need to monitor becomes fairly big fairly quickly. And I'll give you these. So they had 29 tier one suppliers just for a handful of their products. That turns into 212 tier two suppliers. That's over 1,700 tier three suppliers. That's then 14,000 tier four suppliers. And you can imagine the number of locations we need to start monitoring for that. So we're a big data company. We have that ability. When we see something like a wildfire in the West and it's growing and the winds are picking up, we can see what's probably in the path of that. And we're able to alert both of these customers that there was a tier three supplier, two tier three suppliers that were in the direct path of this wildfire. Because there's a delay in every tier you go down by about a week's worth of inventory on hand, that allowed them to understand what the impact was going to be and move forward some of their orders from the tier one that were downstream from those tier three suppliers. Now, the tier one didn't know this risk existed yet either. So as far as they're concerned, they're just getting move forward orders from a customer and that's good. That's more revenue, but it's a, it's an indicator of how the first to know can often take this mitigation strategy and win. So it's it's not only tell me what the risk is, but tell me as soon as it's possible to know about this risk. So I can be one of the first to mitigate because if everyone knew about it, they all tried to move their orders forward, they wouldn't have been able to do that. Now, medical devices, what are examples of 
tier three suppliers to a medical device company. So medical devices are often made of plastics and other synthetics. Just take us through a sample supply chain just to put a little bit more clarity on what we're even talking about here. Our customers often tell us what the end product is. In this case, it was artificial joints, so an artificial knee and artificial hip. And these were ball bearings that were used to simulate the rotation of the joints. That was what was in the line of fire for, for them. So a component in the tier three that goes into a component in the tier two, and then the tier one gives them the final product. They were not going to be able to have the, one of the key components, which is, uh, I'm not sure what it's called in the medical device world, but if you look at a hip, you know what I'm talking about. For example, ball bearings are a tier three of a medical device, which they worried was in the path. So in that case, they accelerated their tier ones. They said, hey, hurry up. We actually want more volume. Before their ball bearing shortage hit their tier twos and then ultimately their tier ones, they're like, let's get a jump start on this. And I suppose you could have also perhaps, or they could have also perhaps said, where else can we get ball bearings on a short order? We have a three or four week lead time now. Where else can we procure them in advance? Yeah, and sometimes they'll actually tell their tier one supplier where they can get, yeah. based on our information, an alternative sourcing location. Okay, great. And so uh, so that's a helping a company reach into their tier, in this case, tier three suppliers or supplier, 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 to assess the risk and then giving your, your client uh, advance notice of that. You've also done this with regard to water levels in uh, rivers that lead to ports, which affect manufacturers' outbound shipments as they're trying to bring their products to market. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Not only do we do long-term you know, water level risk using climate models, but we do short-term monitoring as well and, and prediction as well. And in 2022, there were some record low water levels on key waterways, such as the Rhine River and the Mississippi River. And when they get too low, they're unable to load as much capacity on the vessels going up and down the river because it takes them deeper into the water. Uh, but there are certain vessels, barges, that have a much lower water line. And so here's an example of again, where because we gave early notification to our customers, one of their mitigation approaches was to then use barges for their shipping. They were first to get the barges the capacity of barges soon started to diminish, but the customers that were the first actors to get them had the advantage of being able to ship their goods on these special barges. Got it. So they got early earlier access before there became this crunch on barge capacity. They were they were able to secure it. Exactly. What's the competition look like in this space? I mean, you mentioned a lot of the data sources that you're drawing from are really publicly available in the sense that there's National Weather Services, there's news and media, the import-export documents, a lot, of, a lot of those are public as well. What prevents other companies from scraping that same data sources and coming up with pretty much the same models? How do you differentiate from other companies who are in this space? You get asked that all the time. And so one of the things that differentiates us is our end-to-end -end view. So a lot of our competitors are either just procurement just source to make or just make to distribute, make to deliver. We do both so we can understand their entire value chain and understand risk associated with it. But from a data source perspective, we feel having our own applied meteorology team gives us a leg up there. Um, we have certain partnerships with uh, 
third-party logistics companies that have unique access to some shipment data that they're allowed to share with us under certain conditions. That helps them fill in a lot of the gaps that maybe our competitors might have. And uh, I've got an innovative data science team that manufactures you know, some of their own data, looking at news and media to understand what's going on and what might be happening in the future. Got it. So some proprietary access to data, and then the rest is sort of modeling skill and interpretive skill as well. We're using open source, public domain algorithms, machine learning algorithms for most of this. What then makes your models better are the data you put into it and the data scientists trying to build those models. We feel we have some unique combination. Yeah. So in this space, and I, I was talking to someone from another company that is doing like flood predictions, and I was saying, well, isn't there going to be some pressure for that to be a government function? And so here too, uh, that question comes to mind. If you're giving better advice in advance, for example, of the freeze in Texas, and those who followed your advice saved millions, or in some cases, it could be even a lot more than just a few million, if you're protecting uh, the infrastructure of uh, oil rigs, for example, uh, or or manufa complicated manufacturing companies like chemicals. If the headlines after those storms are, these companies saved themselves by subscribing to this data service, and these companies had billions of losses, which is gonna lead to unemployment and so on. I imagine at some point there might be some pressure to say, hey, why isn't the government stepping in to do this type of projections and hire a data science team and make this information more available? Do you expect that that will be a response that you're going to see as disasters become more headlines and as the the winners and losers of those disasters become more salient? Yeah, I think we'll see some of that. I think we're already seeing governments step in on a lot of ESG-related regulations. And an example of that would be forced labor. And now there are regulations for looking not only at your tier one suppliers for use of forced labor, but in your sub-tiers. And so... That helps us. We had our client council meeting a couple weeks ago, and they talked about sharing this data. It's for the greater good of, of the industry that we find these bad actors. And as I mentioned earlier, they share some of the same tier two, tier three suppliers. So why wouldn't we help out? And this is something we're considering too, to just help out industries for the greater good, looking for this type of behavior. And I could see the government stepping and doing the same thing for climate risk and other types of ESG violation. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it would be an extension, for example, of the idea that weather services are national. Are, there are government investments in predicting the weather. Maybe there'll be more government investment in some of these areas that you're engaged in. Yeah. If it wasn't for the National Weather Service and the European Service, we wouldn't have the models we have today. So what's next for Everstream Analytics? Where do you see the next uh, class of problems that you're going to try and help uh, clients address or new geographies you're going to try and tackle or new industries? What are you seeing as the future? Well, we just announced a Series B funding of $50 million from which was co-led by Morgan Stanley as part of its 1GT private equity platform. So that's to remove one gross ton of carbon emissions by 2050. So they saw that we were heading in that direction, optimizing logistic shipments based on carbon emissions. And it's not just it, you know, optimizing on should I send this ocean versus air versus versus truck versus rail? It's understanding uh, with a little more fidelity what the impact of these carbon emissions 
are and, and what's really producing them. So the transport of hazardous material produces much more carbon emissions than just a regular um, cargo container full of goods. The amount of movement of these containers at a port can determine how much carbon emissions. Uh, congestion at a port, if a vessel has to anchor outside a port for two or three days, that, that's typically not considered in these carbon emissions. So, so we're getting deeper and deeper into that to let our customers um, not only understand the impact of these emissions, the generation of these scope three emissions, but to offer some mitigation strategies to let them trade off, to let them maybe show their customers that they're trading off. I'm paying a little more for this shipment, but let's look what it's done to reduce carbon emissions, right? Some of our some of our shippers think that way and they want to promote this information. Right. I can imagine, for example, if the weather conditions over the past few days or other uh, labor strikes have created congestion in the port, your analytics could instruct the ship to slow sail rather than speed up and then anchor for five days to slow sail, saving energy along the way, and then the products will be unloaded sort of at the same time anyway. Yep, that, that's an example. Or we could tell our customers that if the cargo hasn't been loaded on that ship to the West Coast yet, put it on the ship to the East Coast and use rail to get it to its final destination. Those are the types of decisions we can help them with. Very interesting. This is our favorite last question. Some of our listeners are considering uh, dedicating their careers in business and climate change in some manner. You know, what we've been talking about here has been largely technical, using data to build models. Some of our listeners are going to have those skills and some of them won't, but sort of think this is an interesting area. What do you see as opportunities for both folks with technical data science backgrounds and for those who don't have that orientation? It's certainly a great time to jump into AI. It's all over the place now, and it's moving faster than I've ever seen it. Like I said, I've been working with it for 25 years, and the speed with which new inventions are coming out, and these are these are inventions that can add value to, like ChatGPT. We've got data science experimenting with its potential value on some of our use cases. So don't be afraid of it. It's you know it's it's not Terminator. It won't be for a long time. So not in your careers anyway. So, so jump in, don't be afraid of AI. You don't really need to understand how the algorithms work to understand AI, just understand the types of problems that it can solve. But at Everstream, it, we, it takes a village to, to do what we're doing. We have um, not only applied meteorology teams, but we have research analysts, we have customer success teams that talk to the customers about potential mitigation strategies. They don't need to understand how the AI works or how the forecasts work, but they do need to understand supply chain and then how they can help the customers mitigate the risk. So there's plenty of opportunity around combining data with combining an understanding of supply chain and working with customers and the industries to help mitigate their risk. And how do companies find opportunities at companies like Everstream? We hire all sorts of people. Uh, we like curious people here at Everstream. We're solving lots of problems, some problems that we're going to solve we don't even know about yet. And so one thing about data scientists is they understand the data science part of it, but they're generally pretty hungry to apply that to different problems over time. They don't want to be stuck in, in one problem. We don't have researchers uh, on new algorithms in our company. We have applied machine learning scientists that solve problems with machine learning. So are there conferences or websites or listservs that folks who are interested in this space should subscribe to or attend? 
from a website perspective, if you're more technical, look at KD Nuggets before it was called Data Science, it was called Knowledge Discovery. And they've been providing insights into new algorithms. It, it can get, it goes from a little bit technical to really technical. So that's for that audience. And then there's plenty of, of great uh, resources out there. I follow Let's Talk Supply Chain with Sarah Barnes Humphrey. The Gartner Supply Chain podcast is, is interesting to me as well. And yeah, other than that, don't be afraid of the technology. You don't need to understand the inner workings of it. Just understand the business problems it can be used to solve. Great. And we'll put links to all those materials in the show notes. Thanks for those for that uh, laundry list of, of ideas. Well, Jim, it's been a terrific, really insightful interview. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and sharing the story of Everstream Analytics with Climate Rising. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Jim Hayden, Chief Data Scientist of Everstream Analytics. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Kate Zarenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.